You know what I really like about doing the podcast from our visitor center? No. The fact that I can just be in my pajamas and no one will ever know. <laughs> is that your dream? Your dream come true is to like be in your pajamas all the time? Pretty much. You probably shoot a little higher. <laughs> This is the Dear Bob and Sue podcast, stories of adventures and some misadventures in the U.S. national parks and public lands. I'm Matt Smith. And I'm Karen Smith. We are the authors of the Dear Bob and Sue books, where this podcast gets its name. And we are so excited to bring you the first episode of our brand new podcast. If you're clicking on this podcast, having never heard of us before, you're probably wondering why our names aren't Bob and Sue. We'll explain that. This first episode gets into the story of how we wrote the books and why they're titled that way. And later on, we'll relive a frightening adventure that we had in Alaska, and then we'll answer some questions our readers have asked us on social media or through email. There is a little bit of adult language throughout the podcast, so parents, this is your warning. We kick off the podcast from our quote-unquote National Park Visitor Center in our home near Seattle, Washington. Well, we're in our visitor center. Mm -hmm. Which sounds strange to say it out loud, that we have our own visitor center. Well, our idea was to make our house feel as much like a National Park Lodge as possible, which is a kind of a big thing to do. So we decided we would start just first, we would take one room, our front living room that we never stepped foot in, and we try to make that look like a visitor center. And it does look like a visitor center, I think. It started out, our house was built in the 80s where they had those lovely sunken living rooms. And it was right off our front entryway. So people would literally come in the front door, not see the step down and fall into our living room. So we had the floors raised uh, when we were ready to remodel. And we put in hardwood floors and we put in a, a rock fireplace. And it's looking pretty good. It is actually looking a little bit like a National Park Lodge. We have animal heads on the walls. We have the interpretive pelt collection in the part of one wall so that when people visit, they can see the different pelts. And <laughs> I still have to make the tags, the interpretive tags for the pelts that tell what the name of each animal and a little bit about that animal. I also need to get fur scraps. Because I don't, like, visitors aren't going to be allowed to touch the pelts. Uh, visitors aren't going to want to touch the pelts, Matt. Yeah, they will. No, oh, they yeah. won't. <laughs> they can touch the interpretive tag that explains about the animal. And then the scrap is what they can touch. You know, you put, <sighs> like, a little write in Sharpie on the back of it. Please touch me, you know? aren't going to be allowed to touch the belts. So let me just get this straight. We're having friends over for dinner. And before we sit down to eat, you're going to say, please come into our visitor center and touch my belts. Or actually, don't touch my belts. You can touch this little itty bitty fur scrap that I got. That whole thing is just stupid. It's just completely stupid. 
We could do it after dinner. <laughs> it doesn't have to be before dinner. And maybe they're not over for dinner. Maybe they're just over just to visit. I, visit in our visitor center. When people come over to our house, that's the first thing they do is look at the pelts. I don't, I don't have to invite them. What is with that latest one that you brought in, that little skinny white rat looking one that's hanging there? Next to the skunk. Well, it's it doesn't look like a rat. It's an ermine. It's it's a regal pelt. <laughs> what? It is. If you look at old timey pictures of old time <laughs> kings and queens <laughs> on their coronation, they they have coronation robes and they're made out of ermine. And the Queen of England, her crown, her official crown. Is trimmed in ermine fur, so it's re- it's a regal animal. So it's not it's a short tailed weasel. In the winter, their fur goes white except for the tip of their tail, that little black tip. That's what you see on these coronation robes. The little black dots. They've or they've laid out the ermine fur just so that those black dots are evenly spaced. Wow. Yeah. So anyway, that's what you would read on the interpretive tag. All right. I'm just saying you would think that the Queen of England would have something a little more regal than a weasel cape or a crown or whatever it is she has. Have you have you seen her crown? Have you seen the ermine fur? Yes, I've, I've it's seen pretty it. pretty nice, isn't it? <laughs> Did you ever say, boy, that looks like a weasel? <laughs> No, but I will now, now that I know. That's very luxurious. I think you've ruined it for me now that I see the skinny little white rat looking thing that's hanging up here. So we have interpretive belts. We have heads on the wall. We have some animal heads. We've got a bison. We have a really nice bison. Bison's the, it's the emblem of the continent. It's, It's the national mammal. We have to have a bison. So I searched on Craigslist, found a guy. Not too far, about 30 miles away, he was selling his bison head. His wife told him he had to get rid of it. It was either him or the bison head. So I bought it, drove, met him at a Starbucks parking lot one afternoon, and it was like a drug deal exchanging (laughs) an envelope full of cash for a bison head. Anyway, so we have a bison on the wall. We have coyote, representative of the animals that you would see in in the area of our visitor center. Right, right. We have a, what is that, an antelope? We have an antelope. There's a lot of antelope in the West. Mm-hmm. So it's it's starting to feel a little bit like visitor center. We have a mm-hmm. map area. We have a stamp station. Well, we don't have a stamp station yet because my stamp is not an official park visitor center stamp. I'm, I've tried to find the company that makes the official park, national park stamps. I found them. They won't return my calls or emails. So I got a different one, but it's just not exactly... Right, so. Well, how is it different than the ones in the park? Well, my stamp, the stamp I have is in the center with the date, it's day, month, year, and the official ones are month, day, year. And <laughs> you, so I don't like it. You think anyone would ever notice that? I, I would, I notice. It's, I know the difference, so. <laughs> Again, I'm not sure who's going to come over with their passport book and, and stamp the Matt and Karen Visitor Center stamp, but but we're ready. Only we're, people who are invited. Yeah, we're ready. We're ready for them. Anyway, we love our Visitor Center because it reminds us of 
going to the parks, visitor centers and the lodges when we did our journey to visit all the national parks. How's that for a segue into? That's a great segue. Really good segues. (laughs) Don't mention that it's a segue or they say or don't use the word segue, but. Um, All right. Well, I was trying to pretty, think about it. Pretty good. Thank you. Um, yeah. yeah. Years ago, we we were in our, what, late 40s, early 50s-ish. Late 40s. Late 40s. Let's not advance the age. And we had, we had gotten to the point where our three children were all out of the house. They were either in college or graduated from college, so they weren't living with us anymore. And so we were empty nesters, and I had a job that I'd wasn't all that excited about, although that happens to a lot of people. But also, we had had a couple of experiences. A good friend of ours in his mid-40s had passed away suddenly. Karen's sister passed away at 50 of, of cancer. And so we were kind of getting to this age where we really feeling our mortality and understanding how how finite your life is. And we had a bunch of things on our to-do list, things that we wanted to do. Uh, travel was one of them. We did. When we were facing these losses, it suddenly dawned on us that, um, you know, maybe maybe we weren't going to have that kind of time left. And, and why are we waiting? And maybe if there are things we want to do, we should just go ahead and do them now. So that's kind of how this whole park journey started. Matt looked at me one day and said, I think we should quit our jobs and, and go to all the national parks. And that's that's how the whole thing started. We had started going to some of the national parks before all this happened. And every time we went to one, we were just more excited about going to see the next one. And so that became really one of the big things on our bucket list is we wanted to go see all these magnificent parks. So it wasn't like we were retired. So we didn't have forever to go to the parks. We knew that we would go back to work. So we thought it would take us a year. And at the time, there were 58 national parks, uh, designated national parks, close to 400 national park units. But we were just going to go to the ones that said national park in their names. And it's no uh, more thought to it than than that. At the time, there were 58. By the time we finished, there were 59. So we thought it would take a year. It ended up taking us two years because we hadn't done a lot of planning and we got kind of in the middle of it and realized that a lot of these places that we wanted to see, you really, it was best to see them at a certain time of the year, especially the ones that are in mountains or at elevations is kind of tough to get to when there's snow on the ground or in the wintertime. So we kind of, it turned into a two-year uh, program as in, instead of one. But anyway... Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we didn't. We all, people always ask us when they hear we went to all the parks. They ask us if we did it in an RV, which we did not. We basically all the parks in the West we were able to drive to, and then the other parks we flew and rented a car, and we we did them sort of in geographic areas. Uh, you know, we'd go down to Florida, do the parks down there, go to the Virgin Islands. There's a park there, then come home. So that yeah, it, it ended up taking us about two years to see them all. During this time, well, we had no plans to write a book when we started the journey, but I'd say about six months into it, uh, the idea occurred to us. And along the way, we had sent a few emails to our good friends, uh, Bob and Sue, back home, where we described our stays in the parks and our observations and funny things that happened to us. We had been in Yosemite, and we were staying at the Iwani, and the Iwani for a few years was renamed to the majestic. Now it's back to the Iwani 
beautiful hotel in Yosemite Valley. And when we were the the morning we were going to check out, the, they slipped the bill under the door. And when I saw how much it cost to stay there, <laughs> now I I knew when I had rented the room that how much it was. But by the time you you know you you see it printed on the statement, you realize this is this is a lot of money to to spend one night here. That triggered a thought in my mind that if we were going to pay a million dollars a night to to stay in this room, that clearly that was an indication that all the things in the room, like the paper coasters and the stationery and the pen and a few other things that were clearly consumables. We weren't <laughs> stealing stuff, but the unused soap, we were so going to took it all. We're going to take that. Mm-hmm. And we put that in a big envelope and wrote a letter to Bob and Sue and sent it to them. And those were gifts. Um, there was, those were gifts from us. And <laughs> <laughs> the letter I wrote to them was, was humorous. It was funny. We were making, telling them about all the funny stuff that that had happened. Well, what happened was we sat down and tried to, you know, brainstorm about what kind of a book we would write. And we knew the world didn't need another guide. And we sort of started writing about our adventures and it was, it was, wasn't going well. And it seemed like it was just mind numbingly boring. And so at some point out of frustration, Matt turned to me and said, if only writing a book were as easy as writing to Bob and Sue. And it was like at that point where the light bulb went off and we decided, well, why don't we just write the book as emails to Bob and Sue? The light bulb went on. <laughs> it didn't go off. The light bulb went on. Yes. Thank you for your correction. <laughs> that would be correct. <laughs> Sometimes my light bulb goes off, though. <laughs> it depends if it's already on. Then you would know that it went on more. And so that's exactly what the book is. And that's why we titled it Dear Bob and Sue, because it's a series of emails to Bob and Sue from every park that we went to. It's a humorous book, irreverent. Definitely not a guide. Not it's, a guide. If yeah. you Imagine if you were to write letters to your friends, you're not going to tell them when the visitor center opens or, or you know, give them detailed instructions as to how to get to the park you would you would tell them you know things that you would tell tell friends and so that's what the book is about it's just it's humor and it's it's about funny things that happen to people when they travel together Mm -hmm. so when we finished the parks journey and we published dear bob and sue we both went back to work and we thought, you know, we thought the journey was over, but we kept traveling and we went back to some of our favorite national parks and we did the things that we missed the first time around. And we expanded our scope of travels to include public lands of all kinds, like national forests and national monuments and other NPS sites, BLM land, and even some really um, incredible state parks. And then we've written a few more books after that talking about these travels. We've written Dear Bob and Sue Season 2, Dear Bob and Sue Season 3, and also a book titled Dory's Ho, which is about our Dory trip down the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon. We get a lot of feedback, whether they're emails or social media comments addressed to Bob or Sue. <laughs> we, we are not Bob or Sue. We're Matt and Karen. I know. It's um, very people confusing. People think we're Bob and Sue. There's actually a real Bob and Sue. They're good friends of ours. We try to 
travel with them at least once a year. Yeah. You know, what, as it turned out, which we had no idea when we wrote this, that we did not know how many couples, married couples, are named Bob and Sue. And I think we've heard from at least a thousand of them. Uh, many of them bought our book only because their names were on the cover of the book. We can't undo it. So this podcast series is going to be about some of our adventures in the parks. Some pretty crazy things have happened to us. We found out pretty quickly that the national parks are not Disneyland. And when you put a couple like us, meaning a couple in their 50s who have pretty much no outdoor experience, when you put us in the national parks, some pretty crazy things have happened and actually some scary things as well. One of the most frightening things that happened to us, and I know what the audience is thinking. They're they're thinking like we did stupid things that put well, we us did. in da- danger. And sometimes and, we did, and we did. Yes, we did that often. But mm. this particular one, the the most frightening one, had nothing to do with anything stupid that we did. No, it was one of the few that was <laughs> was somebody else's <laughs> fault. <laughs> So there's eight national parks in Alaska. There's actually more units, national park service units. But there's eight parks in Alaska with national park in their name. Yes, there are. It took us several trips, three trips, actually, to visit all of them. On one of the trips, we visited Denali and then Katmai and Lake Clark National Park. That was one of the trips. It was July. Mm -hmm. It's actually over July 4th. Yes, And Lake Clark National Park, in that particular trip, that was the last park of that trip. And so Lake Clark is what? You know, I don't. How many miles? It's like 120 miles southwest Mm, of Anchorage. No, I'm going to go. I'm going to go with 165. I don't really know either. You don't know. (laughs) But I think it's more than 125. We could fact check that at the end. (laughs) Fact check. You're the fact check. (laughs) I can look it up as we're visiting. No. Right, I'm going to go with 165. Right. Doesn't matter. It, it's, that's not correct, but that's what we'll say. It's 165 miles southwest of Anchorage. We stayed in a little town called Port Allsworth, and it has a little gravel runway. So we took a little teeny tiny plane from the downtown airport in Anchorage out there. The tiniest plane I've ever been on was like, it was a four-seater. And it's I think one of the seats was, with, with it was wings. seriously the size of a little wagon. Yeah. Very scary. Yeah, when he was when he was flying us out there, there's there's a mountain range just west of Anchorage. So west of Anchorage is a body of water, and then there's a mountain range, and then you kind of get into the mountains on your way to Port Allsworth. And there's this. Remember that one that first rise of mountains that and looked I, like he was going to fly straight and, into. Yeah, and he was just flying right at it, and and he <laughs> he was flying right at. The mountains, and he was like doing something on his phone, and I kept—I I think he was playing Tetris or something. I kept saying, "You know, there's a mountain, mountain," <laughs> and we like cleared that mountain by like a hundred feet. I was ready to yell from the back, "Pull up, pull up!" Isn't that like what when they, you know, they pull that yoke thing up and you go the above? Thing. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, but. the yoke thing. Well, he put down his video game long enough to pull up the yoke thing, and. Then, of course, we cleared it, and mm-hmm. from that point forward, it was beautiful scenery all the way to Port Allsworth. But anyway, we we landed there late afternoon. So Port Allsworth, 
there are no roads into the town or anywhere in Lake Clark National Park. So you have to fly in and there's not much there. There was, uh, besides the little airstrip, there was the National Park, Lake Clark National Park headquarters and a visitor center and a couple of lodges. And we were staying at the farm lodge. And we had just enough time that afternoon to do a hike to a really pretty waterfall late in the afternoon. And then, uh, cause you know, it stays light until like, mm, Midnight. Midnight. And so, like at twelve oh one, the sun comes up. Right, so. right. So there's not a lot of uh, darkness in Alaska in July, but um, so that was day one. Our main event in the in every national park, we try to do one big thing. This particular park, we went to visit the site of Dick Prenicky's cabin, and so we the next day we took a little float plane to. Further into the park, too, landed on Twin Lakes, visited the site of Dick Prenicky's cabin, which is just a whole nother amazing story that we can do a whole nother podcast on. Mm-hmm. And that kind of took up that day, came back to the farm lodge, had dinner. And then the next morning, we were going to spend a, another half day hiking through the park, but we woke up and it was, mm-hmm. weather wasn't great. Right. It was, it was drizzling and dreary. So we asked the folks at the farm lodge if we could take an earlier flight back to Anchorage. We weren't supposed to leave there until 6 p.m. and they were able to put us on, I think, about a 10.30 a.m. flight. And instead of going straight to Anchorage, we had to make a few stops, uh, I think three stops at Villages, take some people back home who were visiting Port Allsworth, pick up some other folks, some fishermen mm-hmm. that were out. Mm-hmm. And all their fish. They had, they had multiple boxes of fish. I think salmon. I'm guessing it was salmon. but um. Yeah, so we were on a little plane, Piper Navajo. I think it's seated eight passengers plus the pilot, so there's nine of us on board. And we flew back through Lake Clark Pass, which is the same way we came. This beautiful mountain pass. It's about, what, a half mile wide. Uh, huge mountains lining both sides of this pass. And um, the weather at that point had improved a little bit. The clouds had lifted and the rain had kind of let up. So we could we had pretty good visibility and there were some incredible blue glaciers out the window as we were flying through this pass. It was it was really spectacular. Yeah, I was going to say that I was sitting on the right side of the plane taking pictures of the glaciers. They were just, I mean, there's close enough you could f- feel like you could touch them. But you were on the left side. I think you were just as close to the mountains. There were, mm-hmm. It was a narrow pass. No, like it was you very said, I mean, uh, you know, half, half mile wide, it's, I mean, that's literally 3,000 feet between the mountains on both sides. So wasn't like, you know, there was a lot of space on either side. Anyway, we were flying at about, oh gosh, I'm forgetting, 2,300 feet Yeah, I think elevation. that's about right. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And it struck me, the glaciers, even though it was cloudy out, that they were, how, how blue they are when they kind of come over the mountainside and start tumbling down, how blue they are. Mm-hmm. And it was it was really pretty. So I was trying to get as many photos as I could. And here yeah, we're just flying along, a peaceful flight. And then all of a sudden, there was a bang, a loud metal on metal sound, 
very loud and scary, and the plane sort of shook for a second. Shook a little bit. I thought a part of the plane had fallen off and that maybe, like, as it fell off, we hit it as it was, I don't know, coming off the plane. Because, like, what else would make a metal-on-metal sound? I know. I thought it was, at first, I thought it was an explosion, like one of the engines had exploded, but... Like you said, it was a definite, like a car crash, like a metal on metal. Like we sideswiped another car. Yeah, yeah, except for 2,400 there, 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 no, uh, there are no cars up there. No. So we had no idea what was going on. I It, it concerned me quite a bit because I it was so unusual. And inside a Piper Navajo, it's very loud. The engine noise is very loud. You can't really easily talk to each other. The pilot had headphones on. There was another passenger in what would in the seat right of the pilot, the what would normally be the co-pilot, and they were yelling back and forth a, a little bit. Uh, I could see the pilot was pretty confused and looking around, looking at the instruments. I don't think he knew what was going on. And you and I were right, right behind the pilot. You were right behind the pilot. Right. I was caddy corner in the right. in the next row over. And you know what really scared me <laughs> when I looked at your face. Because you are never afraid on flights, ever. Even when there's severe turbulence, it never bothers you. And so you're always very reassuring to me because I'm always scared. And when I looked at your face and saw how worried you were, I thought, oh, shit, this is not good. Yeah, I didn't think it was. I thought we were going to go down. I, yeah. So I started looking outside the plane down. Our plane had wheels. It, it wasn't a float plane. So makes it even a little harder to find an emergency place to land. There was no, there were no riverbeds or, you know, sandbars or gravel or anything. There was just really nowhere to put a plane down. So I, I was pretty concerned. Yeah. But the plane kept flying pretty straight as if nothing had gone wrong. Right. It was, it was very odd. Also, I could see the, his GPS from where I was sitting and we had from that point of whatever that loud bang was, we had 42 minutes left until landing. So, I mean, that's a pretty long time <laughs> to be thinking that we could plunge to our deaths at any minute. The pilot was clearly talking on his radio a lot more afterwards. So you could tell something was different. Uh, fortunately, as we found out, we were flying straight towards Anchorage. So we didn't have to make a lot of turns. Matter of fact, I think we we may not have had to make any turns until we got close to the metropolitan area. We came out of the mountain range over that body of water west of Anchorage. And we start heading towards downtown. So we were going to land at Merrill Field, which is the airport that the small planes take off and land at. It's not the big airport, which is Ted Stevens. And so it's, you know, the airport's kind of tucked into areas where there's businesses and industrial stuff. And I could see the footprint of the airport. And I noticed as we were flying straight towards the airport that we weren't lined up exactly with the runway. Like that at, at some point, he was going to have to make a maneuver to get lined up with the. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and with, and with it's the, a, what it was about that point where he turned around. Yeah. Well, so he, he, he turns <laughs> and he looks right at me and he yells. He said, hey, I don't know how much of the rudder I lost when we hit that other plane. He goes, so I called in an emergency. So don't be worried about the 
fire trucks and ambulances that, that, that'll be on the runway. Just tell everybody when they see the fire trucks and ambulances to not freak out. <laughs> <laughs> too late. Too late. I turned back to the other passengers and they were they were already freaked out. So, yeah. So it was at that moment that we knew that we had hit another plane. I mean, how does that even happen? And and how are we still flying was, right. is the big question, too. So at that point, then, you know, my stomach kind of dropped out right there because I'd been kind of lulled into this false sense. Well, maybe maybe it was nothing. Maybe it was a bird or some bird strike or something, <laughs> giant birds. But then when he said that, and I don't know if I can land and I don't know how much of the rudder I lost and all that, that's when we kind of thought, oh, man. Yeah. So I thought, well, here we go. As soon as he as soon as he starts to make this turn, if if there's anything wrong with the rudder or it's not there, mm-hmm. that that this is this is when it's going to go bad. Right. And fortunately, it was he made one smooth turn, descended, landed, and everything was fine. And that was obviously a huge relief. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Especially because we could see way off in the distance the fire trucks and ambulances, and they weren't even anywhere close they to They hadn't gotten the there yet. They were still, like, so looking they, for the airport. I, they, right, I could see right. them, and they were driving back and forth on... Yeah. There were a bunch of them, but they weren't at the airport. No, they weren't. So he makes a good landing and taxis back to the little office area, little small building that's their little terminal, and turns off the plane and turned sideways in his seat and no one's saying anything. And he looks over at us. He says, well, I got you here. (laughs) And everyone laughed nervously. And when they stopped laughing, I said, have you ever hit another plane before? And he said, no. And then we laughed again. I don't think he laughed. I don't think he thought that was funny. He might not have, but (laughs) um, (laughs) I was trying to lighten uh, the the mood, but Mm -hmm. We were fine at that point. Yeah. I kept thinking as we were sitting there, like we now we had to get off the plane. I, I kept thinking, I wonder if we'll see, like, is there a dent in the side of the plane? Is is there mm-hmm. something bent on the outside? And I was really curious, like, I, I wonder if it left a mark. I know. So Matt and I, so we all uh, pile out and you get out towards the back of the plane. And so Matt and I were, you know, the two last people to get off. And as we looked up and kind of looked around, it was striking because the tail of our plane looked like some giant monster had just ripped it off. It was all jagged and this exposed metal. And there was, was, there was, there was wreckage. There was like bent metal. Yes. And what was surprising is the rudder and I think part of the rudder is gone. I like I can't I don't really know the anatomy of that particular plane. I tried to figure it out by looking at pictures of planes online of that same model to to see if the part of the rudder was missing. I think it was, but but there was like wreckage in and around the rudder. So for mm-hmm. the fact that the rudder still moved and was functional was just amazing. It was, and there were like exposed wires and it it was just Clearly, a big chunk was missing. We didn't know at the time how much, but it was obvious that there was a lot of it gone. So it was really strange because we all got out and stood there and our pilot disappeared into the office and a baggage handler came out and he unloaded all of our luggage 
And we just kind of stood there not knowing what we were supposed to do, if anyone was going to take a report. We also didn't know what happened to the other plane. There was just, there was absolutely no information and nobody was there to talk to us. So we kind of, we picked up our stuff and we called a taxi to take us to the big airport. Yeah. The staff was pretty nervous. They wouldn't talk to us. They wouldn't look at us. I, I, I don't, it was really a strange 20, 30 minutes there, but we had to, we had to get going. So we, we just called a taxi and grabbed our bags and left and went to the, went to Ted Stevens, big airport. So we were able to go to the Alaska airlines counter and get rebooked on an earlier flight because we were there, gosh, maybe six hours earlier than, than we thought we would, would be. And when we were at the ticketing gate, the woman checking us in, she she thought like we were acting odd, right? <laughs> uh, Odder she, than usual. Uh, more odd than normal. Like, And I think she thought we were just like anxious flyers, mm-hmm. like like we didn't like, you know, like flying made us nervous. But she said, I, she said, are, are you OK? And I said, yeah, we're just a little nervous we've been in a midair plane collision and i think the way i said it she, she probably thought like like sometime in the past and that's why we're nervous flyers and she goes oh i see when did this happen and i said well about a, two hours ago and i showed her the pictures i had taken some fo- photos of of the plane and she she didn't say anything she just she put us in the first class she did, which was great. And she also assured us that our Alaska flight to Seattle would not be hitting another plane in midair. Yeah, she made that guarantee. Mm-hmm. She guaranteed us. So we, you know, we get on the flight. I had numerous cocktails to settle myself down. I had like some facial spasm that wasn't going away. That's right. You had a facial so tick that wouldn't go away. For... Yes. Oh, my gosh. How long did that last? That looks like... <laughs> Every time I thought about and and relived that bang in my mind, the facial started again. (laughs) But um, but the cocktails helped. And um, I was also I was really worried about that other plane that we knew nothing about. Right. Because no one was telling us anything. We tried to. to, I'm not remembering the exact order of things, but didn't we try to like look on the news or well we did and you know that day there was nothing then when we got we got home late that night and the next morning we found some online news articles about the collision so we were able to then we were able to find out what happened yeah we read in the news reports that what had happened is a float plane was flying through the canyon coming straight at us in the opposite direction same altitude, obviously, and it had four passengers, and the bottom of the float plane hit the top of our plane and took off the top couple feet of the tail. So there's a stretcher bar that goes across the floats on the bottom of the plane to keep keep them all together. And that's the part of the plane that just basically sheared off the top part of our tail. And looking at Again, online, looking at that model of plane, I, I can figure that we missed their propeller. I'm, I'm not even sure how we missed their propeller. It, it could not have been more than six inches that we missed mm-hmm. the propeller of, of the other plane. Of course, had that hit, it would have been a very different outcome for probably both planes. Yeah. So they were able to, they 
turned around. They called it in, you know, worried that we had crashed to the ground. Our pilot called it in thinking they had crashed to the ground. They circled back and went back to Anchorage to the lake that they had taken off from. And one of their floats, I guess, was pretty badly damaged and they sort of had to make a little emergency landing, but everyone was fine, which was a complete miracle that there were four people on that plane and nine people on our plane and everybody walked away. Which yeah, 13 was, people in yeah. uh, a mid-air plane collision mm-hmm. and everyone was fine. So that that's a miracle in and of itself. I think that's exactly what the NTSB said. It's like this. People normally don't get to tell the story about being in a mid-air plane collision. So we we felt pretty fortunate about that. Right. Yes. That was our most frightening incident. And uh, ever since then, we've, we know that we're just every day is bonus day, right? I don't it know that we were supposed day. to be here. So Matt's been eating a lot of bacon. <laughs> I had pie for breakfast. <laughs> he kind of threw You can't up. tell me what to do because I'm not even supposed to be here. Just ignore me. <laughs> That's right. Don't get between me and the TV when football's on. Yeah. And yeah, because... I'm I, on bonus time. Okay, so mailbag this week. We are going to answer probably the most frequent question that we get when people find out we went to all the national parks. And that question is easily enough, which park was your favorite? Which park was our favorite? We don't think so much about which park is our favorite as opposed to what are some of our most, our favorite experiences. Because if you go to a park like we did and for a day or two or three, you're going to miss all the things that you could do in that park in the other seasons or when the weather's different. And so we really think about it more around experiences that, than our favorite park. Although Yellowstone is probably uh, consistently <laughs> one of our favorites that yes, we keep going back to. Absolutely. But probably the, our favorite experience was going to Katmai and watching the bears and being very close to the brown bears when they were feeding on the salmon. We were surprisingly close to the grizzlies. Yeah, that was an incredible experience. So yeah, Matt's right. You know, it's hard to, every person's experience in the parks is so unique. And our experience will never be what someone else's will be. So it's hard for us to tell people what our favorite one is, because I'm sure they'll have a different experience in that park, depending on what they do and the weather and the season. And people want us, tend to want us to rank the parks, which we don't do in our book. We, we're we we're really honest and we talk about some of our lesser favorite places, but then we've talked to people who've been there and they loved those places. So, you know, it's all, it's all very subjective. And when we talk to other people about what their favorite national parks are, it, it's a huge range, you know, at least a dozen different parks are mentioned. So anyway, that, that's a very vague answer to a very specific question. So we get a lot of really fun emails from people um, asking questions and relating their experiences and commenting on our books. And probably one of the ones we enjoyed the most was from Donna Triplett. 
in, let's see, Columbus, Ohio. And she wrote to us, Dear Matt and Karen, I really loved your book, Dear Bob and Sue, but I wish you would have written about your romantic encounters in the park. Yeah, we're not going to do that. <laughs> Ever. We, we Spoil alert. Yeah, we're not We're not <laughs> writing about having sex in the National Park. There's, no, no, there are no sex scenes in our, any of our yeah, books. Our kids are going to read these books. So <laughs> I'm not paying for their therapy for the rest of their lives. To, so, so we're, we're going to, we're going to keep those stories in the vault. That's right. If but, there are any stories, who's, I'm not even saying there are <laughs> romantic oh, there, stories. Oh, there's some stories, but I'm sorry, Donna, that that is something that we will not be writing about. And a li- little weird to ask about. <laughs> she might be listening. Well, she could be. And, <laughs> Now she has her answer. <laughs> Although I think we did email her back. Yeah, and said, we, we emailed her we back. We can't afford our kids' therapy. Right, right. There was, there's good reasons we didn't write about it. We were going to do a different book. We thought for a while we were going to do a different book under new names so that no one would know it's us. It was going to be Dear Robert and Suzanne. Well, yeah. And do all the when, sex stuff. Right. Because when Fifty Shades of Grey came out with all the mommy porn and it sold like a billion copies, we thought, hey, we're, we're kind of missing the boat here. We're so <laughs> Instead missing Instead of the boat. writing about the national parks, we should write about sex in the national Why parks. Are we talking but- <laughs> about bears and plane collisions. <laughs> right. So if you ever see a book entitled... Dear Robert and Suzanne, that will be code for... No, don't tell people. (laughs) It's probably not from us, and it's it's not about us. We'll have different... We'll have to have a, a pen name. If you have a question for us, you can send us an email at mattandkarensmith at gmail.com or reach out to us on social media. Go to facebook.com slash Dear Bob and S, or you can find us on Instagram at Matt and Karen Smith. We'll review all the questions that come in, and we'll be answering them in our mailbag segment on a future episode. Just don't do what one reader did and ask us about the romantic stuff in the parks. We're not going to do that. If you want to see the pictures of the mangled tail of our airplane and links to the national parks we talked about today, go to www.com. The Dear Bob and Sue Podcast.com, where we'll have a blog post to go along with each episode. Since this is our very first episode, we can't thank you enough for giving us a listen. If you liked our show and want to help spread the word, we'd sure appreciate it if you left us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps more people find the show. You can also subscribe to our show on Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. If you want to check out the books this podcast is based on, head over to www.dearbobandsue.com. Really, the best way to support us and this show is to buy our books and tell your friends about them. You can also follow us on Instagram, like Karen said, at Matt and Karen Smith, where we post pictures of our travels. Our show is produced by Puddle Creative in Portland, Oregon. Our artwork is by the designers at Expert Subjects. And our theme music is by Will West. From our home visitor center in Seattle, we're wishing you happy travels. Mm-hmm.